So if you're a fan of science fiction, I'm sure you've heard of the movie Dune. And Dune features a very unique creature in the form of the giant sandworm. Matter of fact, there's a trailer for the new Dune movie out there right now where, where Paul Atreides rides the, the, the mighty sandworm. Some people, at least partially, believe that there may be a killer worm in the deserts of Mongolia. And they've even used similar ways to lure it to the surface as what it was what featured in the Dune movie. Kind of, I think, reaching there when they, when they use those particular tactics. But, you know, is there a killer worm in the deserts of Mongolia? Is there a Mongolian death worm? That's tonight's topic. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome friends to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. My buddy Bill here uh, suggested the Mongolian death worm as a topic, and while I was familiar with the reference, mostly from just the last 50 years of giant worm-like creatures, I wasn't so much up to par with the Mongolian death worm version. But as as Bill said, uh, it's very similar to the Dune movies with the giant sandworms and not too far stretched out from uh, even such movies as Tremors. Uh, I was not familiar with the lore behind them and not at all familiar, like I said, with the Mongolian deathworm itself. So as I most often do, I chose some early history of the legend and lore. I went back, I went way back to a couple possible ancestors of the Mongolian deathworm. And so I thought I would start talking off on some of those and then I'll hand it over to Bill for the, uh, the true story of the Mongolian deathworm. Now I found there were two early examples of mythology of this style cryptid. Some might refer to digestive tubes or, or worms. One is called the Indus worm, and the other is called a Scoliex. Now, first off, I wanted to get a good definition in front of us all to clarify the topic for this evening. So here's what I found on the description of a cryptid worm-like creature. First off, it has a soft body. It is limbless, has no arms, legs. It is an invertebrate, and it lives at least partially below ground or part-time underground. Travels by crawling or sometimes swimming, as the case may be, because some do swim in the water, and it poses a threat to humans. Now, the Indus worm, recorded as early as the 5th century in a book called Indicia, the Greek physician and historian Patasius writes in all the studies there is one such creature living in the Inuus River, in which the name Indus worm derives its name. It looks much like a larva caterpillar that could be found in palm trees but it was on a much, much larger scale. He described that as a white maggot-looking creature that had the girth of about a 10-year-old child could barely wrap their arms around this behemoth and embrace it. Uh, that sounds terrible. I actually had a little blurb here. You know, it's like, you know, obviously, you know, things back in the 5th century was a little bit different than today's time frame, but uh, in, in the writings especially, but literally WTH. Who uses a 10-year-old child to use that as a unit of measure for a giant white maggot cryptid? 
Oh, okay. This may be uh, slightly off topic, but it reminded me of something I read the other day where they were talking about how to measure a mile and how many feet are in a mile. Mm-hmm. And then there was a, a, a person from, you know, the UK that responded by, well, if you need to know how many you know, meters in a kilometer, you just take that times a thousand because our system wasn't designed by a drunk man rolling dice to figure <laughs> out values. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of different articles that t- use different things to measure. I've, I've seen, uh, uh, was it just the other day I saw a picture where it had this guy in, like laying down on the ground next to this object. I don't remember what it was. But like as you can see, this is roughly the size of Juan, and it was like, oh, so now Juan's a unit of measurement. Yeah, poor Juan. So yeah, we use a lot of weird things to measure things. Yeah, I mean it's like yeah, we got a, we got an eight year old child. No, his arms can't go around it. So ten <laughs> year old child, Bobby, go ahead and step up. Oh, we have a winner. Yes, Bobby can reach around the worm barely, and, and the twelve year old he can grab it clearly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but regardless, this creature is estimated that it was somewhat in the vicinity of ten foot in length and about two and a half feet in girth. So it was pretty huge, uh, even if you uh, aren't a ten year old child. Now. <laughs> Paceus, the 5th century writer where we gain this information from, does give reference to yet another worm, even older, a giant worm cryptid from Greek mythology. Now, this one is a little a little bit different. Uh, it has two large upper teeth and two large bottom teeth, and it only comes out at night as a nocturnal predator. Now, the, the depictions and drawings and sketches of this is if you could imagine a rat's mouth, you know, with the two big front and bottom teeth, or maybe a rabbit, it didn't have any rows of teeth or anything, just these four giant teeth, two on the top, two on the bottom, that kind of worked as a guillotine kind of mechanism to chop up uh, its victims as it hunted it, uh, hunted those at night. So that's, that's pretty scary. Uh, it was called a scoliex. Now, this creature was even larger, up to 10 times larger than the previous one. Uh, so we're talking, uh, you know, easily. 30, 40, 50 feet, and it was described as having these giant rabbit or rat-like teeth. As if that weren't horrific enough, the earlier Scoliex worm had a giant tongue that could stretch out over half its body length in which it would stick and grip its prey, roll it up, and then pull it back into these giant guillotine-like teeth. <laughs> then, this, this tongue, by curling around things, one story was written that this this giant snake, the Scoliex worm, it, it swam and it showed almost like a crocodile or alligator or a large snake. You, it would surface, you could see it coming, but it showed a horse that was drinking. Now, this thing was big enough that it came up near the bank, wrapped its tongue around the horse, drug said horse across the sands and the pebbles and out into the water where it devoured it. So is, is a giant worm of some kind going to feature in a D&D adventure in the near future? I think it has <laughs> to, especially after reading this. Now, this particular worm, it's a little picky about what it eats. It refuses to eat any entrails, whether that be human or horse. So it would eat the entire carcass, apparently even the bones, but then it would come up on the bank and puke up, vomit up the guts and intestines of whatever it ate. And therefore, it was just almost like mocking people. Like you wondered what happened to your horse. Well, yeah, here, here's, a, here's a little here's a little hint. I wonder what happened to your horse. Right here it is. Now, it's reported by some stories passed down. The, the worm's trail could be found on land slithering into the water. It would leave these drag marks like what I had described with the horse. Now, these troughs or whatever you want to call them where this massive creature would crawl. That's very typical to what you would find like in Louisiana with... Uh, 
with with the crocs alligators boa constrictors you know anything like that that would kind of travel a certain path over and over would create these slides obviously just crushing the vegetation and everything that was beneath them a few more odd twerks with this massive worm killer is that uh, there are several documentations where these creatures could be and had been caught a goat possibly might be staked out with a giant hook tied onto its body the worm would come up on shore and it's wrap its tongue around the goat, getting caught on the hook. And then hunters would return the next morning to have this now giant worm killer staked in place of the goat. Poor goat didn't make it, of course. And they would harvest this giant worm or snake. Now, not to eat the flesh, not to eat the meat or anything like that. They found that as the body started to decompose, the stomach lining, is what it was described as, was a yellow putrid jelly-like material. This is what they would harvest. This was extremely flammable, apparently, and it also had kind of an acidic property to it. They also found that, especially with the Greek, that this could have been the connection with what is known as Greek fire that sailing ships and stuff would then use. And actually, there were sketches, and there has been documented the very earliest form of flame-throwing devices, which (laughs) were mounted to the ships that would eject some strange, unknown Greek fire with the flame and burn down, especially the sails and ships of uh, 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 other ones that were trying to invade or pirate. As if Greek fire wasn't bad enough, you find out that you're being hosed down with worm guts. Worm guts. Yes, decaying worm <laughs> guts. Now, these uh, early flamethrowers, could they said, could actually shoot out this flame as much as 50 foot towards attacking ships, more in particular their sails, allowing a great advantage uh, with close combat at the sea. Flash forward about 300 years later, and after the accounts of uh, Pateasus, one, uh, another famous Greek philosopher by the name of Ptolemy, recorded a slightly different version of the similar makeup. The outstretching tongue seems to have disappeared. However, possibly an exaggerated larger size could be described. And this creature takes us to the Mongolian death worm. So, Bill, take it away. Well, I don't think the Mongolian death worm is quite the giant worm, but it's definitely a dangerous worm. Now, the, the creature is also known as the large intestine worm. That comes from the, the name that the, the locals use for it. The creature is alleged to exist in the Gobi Desert, which is a vast region that spans a territory of over 500,000 square miles of rough terrain. Tales of the Mongolian deathworm first came to Western attention as a result of Roy Chapman Andrews' 1926 book entitled On the Trail of Ancient Man. And in the book, he described secondhand tales of the monster that he had heard at a gathering of Mongolian officials. And now in his own words, none of those present had ever seen the creature but they all firmly believed in its, its existence and described it minutely. Now, in his book, Andrew cites Mongolian Prime Minister Demden Bazar, uh, who in 1922 described the worm, quote, It is shaped like a sausage, about two feet long, has no head nor legs, and it is so poisonous that merely to touch it means instant death. It lives in the most desolate parts of the Gobi Desert. So already you can see that the worm has a reputation for being fatal. Even just touching the worm is supposed to be deadly. So obviously it's secreting an acid, a poison, both something. Yeah. So in 1932, Andrews again published uh, information about the the death worm, this time in a book called The New Conquest of Central Asia, where he added it is reported to live in the most arid, sandy regions of the western Gobi. So it's 
all over the Gobi Desert, apparently, but only, you know, in the most remote regions where people can't find it. But some people that found it may have touched it and didn't get to report uh, that yeah. they found it. So in the 30s, a Russian scientist by the name of Adi Simukov, he wrote in his travel diary, and I'm going to quote again here, the worms are common animals in the Saxal and Suj Gobi. The animal usually comes to the surface when it is raining or when the ground is wet. It wraps its entire body around the animal when eating and swallows it whole after choking. It is believed that if you meet this worm in the desert, you will not survive. The worm spreads its cyanic toxin in a circular way, and soon any animals and people around him lose consciousness for a moment and fall. The worm comes to the surface during its reproductive period and is very dangerous if encountered during this time. Normally it is light in color, and when angry it turns red and emits millions of drops of toxins from its mouth. The poison is like cyanic acid. Hmm. So here you have this, this venom-spewing angry worm. And in addition to changing color when, when it's angry uh, to red, and some people have even said sometimes blue, those stories have popped up. But when it gets really angry, some stories say that it will scream like roaring thunder and then explode if it gets angry enough. That's definitely a D&D character. Yeah, spreading its toxins <laughs> throughout the air. Now, allegedly, a Russian expedition uncovered a dead specimen in 1972, but this specimen has since disappeared and is rumored to be hidden inside the basement of a Russian museum. Now, in 1990 and 1992, cryptozoologist Ivan McCurl led several groups of companions into the Gobi Desert in search for the worm. Now, he is the guy I referenced earlier, where inspired by the book Dune by Frank Herbert, in which, you know, of course, you have the giant fictional sandworms that can be brought to the surface by rhythmic thumping, a device they call a thumper in the book, and I believe it will feature in the next movie. McCurl and his group constructed a motor-driven thumper, which is a device that would just rhythm rhythmically pound on the sand. Send that almost like a yeah. heartbeat, a pulse. And they even use small explosions to create vibrations trying to attract the worm. Well, I'm sitting here thinking, and I hadn't put it together until just right now, but we have a similar creature in the Star Wars, like the Mandalorian. There's a giant worm in the desert that they go yeah. and hunt like in season two. So this, this thing has been plagiarized to, <laughs> to heck. Uh, in 2005, a zoological journalist, Richard Freeman of the Center for Fortean Zoology. So that's a cool job. He mounted an expedition to hunt for the death worm, but he also came up empty handed. Now, his conclusion was that the tales of the worm's powers had to be exaggerated, to say the least. And that reported sightings likely involved other known creatures. So. He, he, was, he wasn't sure that the deathworm existed at all. Now, British biologist Carl Schuker wrote in his 2002 book entitled The Unexplained and Illustrated Guide to the World's Paranormal Mysteries, and I'm going to quote here, One of the world's most sensational creatures may be concealed amid the sands of the southern Gobi Desert. It is said to resemble a large fat worm up to three feet long and dark red in color with spike-like projections at both ends. It spends much of its time hidden beneath the desert sands, but when everyone is spotted lying, it is scrupulously avoided by the locals. So again, if you see a death worm. Well, you mentioned these bright red, orange colors. I mean, it, we've been taught in, from school that, you know, and especially in the jungle settings, those dart frogs with the fluorescent colors. Yeah. And, you know, when you see something in the wild like that, that has colors like that of a peacock, don't touch it. You know, don't go near it. That's uh, so. That, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Even though I've said a couple times now that it's like about three feet long. Some stories talk of a creature that is up to seven feet long, possibly even 20 feet long. So, again, stories vary. But, you know, if it's not a real creature, then, you know, Why mythology not? around. So, Freeman also talked later about a trip to Mongolia in 2005. Uh, to quote again, the worm certainly exists. 
When we talked to people during our trip to Mongolia, they were all quite certain of that. They didn't believe it could spit electricity, but they did believe it was venomous. They're afraid of it. I think it's a reptile. It's either an unknown species of worm lizard, which is related to snakes, or an unknown species of sand boa. Nobody thinks of it as a mythical creature in Mongolia, but a real living animal. Now here, you know, he, he's saying there's a real creature, maybe a type of sand boa, maybe something else. Now I did reference there, he talked about a spitting electricity. That is another attack form that is given to the, the Mongolian deathworm. It can emit electrical aura and paralyze you through the sand. Wow. And, and drop you to make you easier prey. So we have a worm that breathes lightning. Yeah. That no, sounds dragon-like. Yeah. So reality television series Destination Truth conducted an expedition from 2006 to 2007. They turned up empty-handed. A New Zealand television entertainment reporter named David Ferrier of TV3 News took part in an expedition in 2009. They didn't find anything. But he conducted several interviews with locals who had claimed to have seen the worm. And he mentioned on his website that sightings really peaked in the 1950s. Now, we've talked a lot about the worm. I'm going to kind of summarize what we got here to say, like, this is the monster we're talking about. The monster, the worm, the Mongolian death worm, is said to travel under the sand, creating waves in the surface of the sand as it goes, which allow you to detect it, which is, again, just straight out of noon. It is claimed that the beast hibernates for 10 months out of the year, emerging only during June or July. And even then, of course, it prefers to come to the surface when it's raining and the ground is wet. Um, locals refer to the creature as the Olgoy Korkoy, which is where we get the name large intestine worm. So I guess the, the original color of the creature, is they, they say it looks like a cow's intestine. So it's probably like a pinkish color. Pinky red, yeah. And then when it gets angered, you know, it turns red. It has several ways that it can kill, including a couple that are at a distance. Uh, it can spit a stream of corrosive venom is lethal to any living creature that it touches and is said to be corrosive enough to corrode metal. And it does this by raising the top half of its body out of the ground, expanding until it looks like it might explode, as I talked about earlier, and then releasing the venom all over its intended target. Or, like we said a moment ago, it can electrocute its victim. Now, it primarily lives and burrows underground. In addition to humans, the creature will prey upon camels, and legends state that the worm will lay its eggs inside of the animal's intestines. And they will eventually turn the camel the same shade of red as the worm, with other stories saying that the worm gets its red color from the blood of the camel. So I'm not sure if that, hmm. that story works both ways, I guess. Due to the harsh conditions of the Gobi Desert, a soft, fleshy creature like a worm would probably not be able to survive. A worm as we understand it. Yes. A worm, as we understand it, would have to have moisture to live, you know, obviously yeah. not in a desert setting. And that is why, like we said earlier, it's possibly an unknown species of worm lizard, which is a lizard that doesn't have any legs, uh, or amphisbena, which is same, or some sort of snake, which would be better suited to the terrain. Now, in 1983, a specimen of tartar sandboa was shown to the locals, and some said that the two could be the same animal. Now, a sandboa is not big enough girth-wise. It's not, it's not thick enough. It's a slender, you know, it's a snake. It's a boa snake, you know. So like a three-year-old child could wrap around yeah, it easily, yeah. easily. <laughs> yeah, if we're going to measure it in children, it, it, it also doesn't look anything like the typical description of the Mongolian death worm of the coloration, nor does it have spiny protrusions like the death worm is said to have. And of course, being a sand boa, the creature is not venomous nor electric in nature. So hmm. now on occasion, skeletons of animals have been found that appear to have been rotted by acid. And there is at least one first-hand account that I was able to find of an encounter with the worm, which is a very interesting story. 
Now, this story was related by Soviet scientist Ivan Efremov, uh, and he wrote an article about the death worm, as well as the death of two of his fellow researchers on the expedition. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this here. It is weird. It's like a sausage, the driver whispered in my ear. It had no legs, no mouth, no eyes. It was a meter long and looked like a sausage. Head and tail were indistinguishable. There were two fat, snake-like creatures curled up in the sand. When our Grisha jumped out of the cab, our operator shouted, Don't shoot! Catch him alive! and ran after him. At that moment, the old Mongolian man beside me grabbed my hand and looked at me with a frightened look and begged, Leave it! There will be a death! Call them back! So I called out to Grisha and Misha, Come back! But they kept running to that animal, not knowing if they heard me. Suddenly, two How fast was this thing moving? They're chasing it down. Well, it said it was just there. They, they were running after it to go get okay. it. Okay, okay. Suddenly, two worms formed a ring, which immediately turned dark blue, which I assume is the worm spewing its toxins into the sand. At first, Misha fell silently on the sand and became completely motionless. After a while, Grisha fell to the same place. I took my pistol and ran after them, but the two worms were already gone. Unfortunately, our co-workers were already dead due to toxins. That was quick. Yeah, I mean, this is instant death from the death worm. So I assume that is how it got its name. <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. Now, I had heard of the death worm in, in different places. I, I assumed when starting the research on the death worm, I would find much more about it than I actually did. Apparently, it is one of those cryptids that while people have heard of it, there's not a lot of firsthand accounts. You know, we have Bigfoot fur and we have Bigfoot footprints. You have photographs of Nessie. You have recordings of the Australian Yowie. This is the only firsthand account I was able to find. And we didn't get any photographs or yeah, anything. There's no photographs. There's no evidence. Uh, you know, it says they occasionally find skeletons that look as if they could have been rotted. But, you know, I, I assume if a skeleton sits long enough in the desert, it's going it to would rot. change. Yeah. So, you know, this is, is sort of a, a mysterious creature that doesn't have a lot of recorded history. And the people, you know, the Mongolian people believe in it wholeheartedly. To, to the point that, like I said, their government recognizes the death worm as a real creature. They just, you know, a lot of people are willing to admit that it's probably not a worm per se. Uh, with the spiny protrusions and whatnot, I think more of like a giant caterpillar looking thing. But again, you have well, this. You know, another piece of early history, uh, especially for the Mongolian death worm, we cannot ignore in the regions of India and Asia, even Mongolia, the religious connection to hundreds, if not thousands, of carved references of statues depicting some form of a god or a goddess that has a snake-like body. Of course, D&D mythology and fans, when we hear uh, of the Naga, you know, with a, a human-esque face atop of a, a curled snake. You've, you've mentioned, you know, the lightning breath. Uh, in some of those religions, they believe that some of the Nagas, which I've We've played D&D for many years. I had never heard, but apparently Nagas, many Nagas can have flame breath or dragon's breath. Well, you got to remember that D&D is sort of a westernized interpretation of a lot of those old mythologies. Uh, a lot of creatures in myth, in D&D in don't, you know, have, they don't have a direct counterpart in mythology or, or sometimes they're interpreted wrong. So. Or they'll take two or three creatures and yeah. combine them. But, you know, I, I was j just going to say, you know, out of all the years I've played D&D uh, and and learned a lot of mythology from it. I learned something in the research for this podcast that Nagas can can blow flame and, and maybe apparently even lightning. Also, back in the 19th century, back to some of the earlier worms that I was describing, most scientists 
are leaning into try to believe it is something. It's not just something made up in people's minds, but they believe it could be a very large alligator or a croc. Back in history, it was known that uh, such animals to live off the coasts of India, Southeast Asia, and they are known as estuarines. They're alligators or crocodiles that can live in either short-time salt, fresh, or what's called brockish waters, which is the natural occurrence of where the fresh rivers and, and the salt water from the oceans and seas meet. So taking into the fact that the area of the you know Mongolia and India and all of this and the old, old religious factors, carvings, I think there's definitely something to this, as they say to most stories, there's, you know, at least a, a kernel seed of, of truth there. But That's kind of where I'm at. I mean, the, pe- the people in the region believe there's something there, and they've obviously encountered something that is fatal. Now, in nature, especially like, you know, worms, and so they usually become deadly because of the things they eat. I believe it was the monarch butterfly. The monarch caterpillar is poisonous to anything that eats it, but that's because of what it eats. So, What would a desert worm eat that would be so poison i that's interesting interesting well i think with that we've come to the point where we're ready for some headlines nightmare headlines well bill in full honesty i was going to talk about the tiny little worms in the amazon that swim up the uh, um um, male sexual organs uh, i thought that was a fish was it a fish well, regardless, I, I didn't want to get accused of being too much like, you know, bad dad jokes or fart jokes. So I changed that subject. Uh, and uh, we, we hear about two to three years ago uh, here for the first time of what is called jumping worms here in the United States. Okay. I've never heard of a jumping worm. Really? Okay. Well, these little jumpers are causing big problems, not only for farmers, uh, but honestly, any garden or even your lawn. They can grow as much as eight inches in length. Now, you know, we're far cry from 30 feet or 10 feet, but, you know, eight-inch worm is a good-sized worm. worm. Uh, They're very distinguished by two easy ways from the common, you know, more non-aggressive, just we'll call them fishing worms that we have. I'm going to guess that at least one of these ways is that they jump. Bingo! (laughs) You're listening. Uh, Kudos. Obviously, these things jump. Now, not in the same manner you might think, but, you know, a lot like a corkscrew that jumps up and springs around. but more so, they just twist and turn so violently that they leap up as high as, you know, an inch, maybe even two inches off the ground. And when mating, especially, or in large pod groups, they can form these masses of twisting, turning, crawling with dozens of worms that you might just like be out in your yard and see them coming across the yard at you. Okay, so here's the thing. I know you and I have talked about this. I don't know if I've ever referenced it on the podcast. I have this this fear of hordes of things lots of things uh ant swarm things like that like you know so the mental image of this wiggling mass of worms just pile of yes. makes my skin crawl well i i refer back to uh and some of our younger listeners won't remember there was a tv series put out called lonesome dove western many many years ago and one of the cowboys crossed the river and water moccasins and mating season in the river act very similar they i mean hundreds of them just a, a big churning turning ball and this poor cowboy this traumatized me as a child yeah. was riding across and of course they begin to just blindly strike so they bit the horse the horse is trying to buck this young cowboy off who's by the way he was petrified of water and didn't want to cross the river to begin with and now we see why 
it showed these water moccasins just jumping up and biting the sides of his cheek and his throat. And oh, it was just horrific nightmare stuff. I know you're, you're trying to do your headline. There's an old, I think, 70s movie called Squirm. And I don't know what the motivating factor is. I don't know if it's a chemical thing. I don't know, whatever. But something causes the earthworms to go rabid and, and, and attack people, which really doesn't sound like much. But again, at the end of the movie, I remember there just being like this huge mass of worms just in this guy's house. And at a certain point, he's trying to go up the stairs to get away from him, and he falls down into him. And when he stands up, he has like a beard of worms where the worms have latched (laughs) Uh, onto his face. uh, Yeah, just, you know, really bad 70s horror, I guess. Well, as I said, there was two ways you can tell these jumpers from our more innocent version of fishing worms. One is obviously the jumping factor we were talking about. But two, they have a very distinct, uh, almost pure white ring around their neck region. Uh, so they're easy to spot visually, even from a large distance, as well as they'll most likely be jumping, writhing, spinning, whatever. How do you identify the neck of a worm? I, I thought the same <laughs> thing, but many references put it that way, and it's like, I, I guess. Okay, it's, yeah. it's a little Sounds neck good. bow tie, if you could a figure little, out which end is collar the neck. on. Yeah, a little collar, a little collar. Now, I will say my dad's family grew up in northern Iowa, and I remember as preteen we would go out and in iowa for whatever reason they had what was called jumpers i don't know if these were the same things or not but they were very healthy large worms but uh, we fished with those and oh my gosh they were amazing the the scientists and stuff out of these more recent jumper worms say these are not good fishing worms for multiple reasons one is that they are so violent and aggressive with the way they twist that you just you can't even keep them on the hook they'll wow They'll drop their tail. They'll, you know, cut themselves in half. And then they're just twirling so much they just tear off the hooks. Unless you want to fish with empty hooks within a matter of moments. So <laughs> they say, yeah, that's just not a good idea. But, um, you know, you, you might ask, well, what's this poor little worm? Even It just jumps and it's wearing a cute little neck collar. You know, besides <laughs> that, what did, it, what did it deserve to get such a bad rap? Well, they're very aggressive. They reproduce very quickly and often kill off the smaller harmless counterpart a.k.a. the fishing worms, because of their size, the numbers, and the food it takes to power them with all of their energy, they will eat everything in sight. They feed on the creatures of the soils that are supposed to be there, grubs, caterpillars, uh, all of this type of, uh, of creatures. And after these jumping worms are done, now they're left with the small curds of dirt, uh, resembled what I would call crumples of chocolate. Well, you, you've probably seen them, the little worm. I don't know the right name for it. I'm going to say spore, but okay. they, like, if you walk through your lawn or something after it rains and starts to dry, you've probably seen them. Mm-hmm. Or the, the common earthworm does the same thing. Right, right. But these are bigger chunks. Well, it's a bigger worm. Bigger but. worm. <laughs> and part of the problem with this is that is horrible soil for growing anything. I was gonna say, the water just runs through it. Well, it, and it's, it, it doesn't it's not absorb fertile it. either. Right. Because they've they taken the nutrients out exactly. of it. Exactly. So now you've got this larger quantity of, of big energetic worms. They've, they've devoured the lawn. They've devoured caterpillars, grub worm, roly polies, other fishing worms. So now they start to eat the fallen leaves, which is essential to replenish the soil. So they eat all of that. They begin to eat the tiniest of the roots from trees, shrubs, flowers, plants, because they're still growing and they're still multiplying. They will often stunt their own growth or in gardens uh, for plants I'm talking about will stunt the growth of plants 
weaken them to a point where they just simply cannot even produce. So you might have these beautiful tomato plants and stuff that they just don't have enough energy and, and nourishment to produce fruit. Uh, so they move on again and now starting to feed, you know, on, on anything and everything that they can find. And they just turn everything upside down in the natural scheme of, of life, the wilderness, the soil regions. So what can you do to defend your castle abode from these jumping worms? Or how do you even know if you have them? You swear at them? You can swear at them and they will <laughs> jump back, smack you upside the face. Now you can actually take a third of a cup of dried mustard powder and mix it with a gallon of water, shake it up really well, and then just pour that directly on the ground around your flowers or garden. No, it's not going to hurt the plants. It's not going to hurt you know anything that they might produce like tomatoes or whatever. But it will leave a white-colored residue on the topsoil for a few days. And as the soil absorbs this mustard seed-tainted water, this mustard powder, within moments, any type of worm beneath that soil will immediately come to the surface. Now, apparently, this mustard coats their skin. It's an irritant, but it doesn't hurt them. But obviously, they want to get the, out of dodge, as they say. So they come up and are trying to get out of that. So you'll be able to see if you have any of the large jumping worms that you know come up out of there. And if so what the uh, local garden areas and stuff are, are telling you to do is just simply have a bag and something to scrape them in and uh, humane death as possible. Tie the bag shut, throw it in the trash and move along and you've protected your yard. So my headline is from the website, all that's interesting.com and is dated September 20th, 2022. The title of the article is the stuff of nightmares uh, written by Kalina Fraga. So I found this story kind of interesting. Nine-year-old Barnaby Domigan was digging around in his parents' property in Christchurch, New Zealand, when something caught his eye. It was the biggest earthworm he had ever seen. Now, unlike the, the tiny little worms, the fishing worms, that sometimes wiggle out of the dirt, this one was about three meters long. Uh, again, this is a New Zealand story, so three meters, roughly nine feet. Going back to measuring with children and different yeah. <laughs> differences between the countries, yes. Uh, Barnaby said, I kind of thought it would have been a worm because it had the shape of a worm, but not the size. I thought it was massive and amazing and a little bit disgusting. He said the worm looked slimy and squishy, and he didn't want to touch it because he was worried that it might have some sort of bacteria, which I guess is good thinking for a kid. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought that way when I was a kid. Uh, he called his father, who took a picture of him holding up the worm on a stick, and his mother told reporters he was digging around and stumbled upon in the water this giant, disgusting worm. I think it was already deceased when he found it, so just sort of bobbing on the edge of the water there, and he dug the stick in and he pulled it up and then my husband took the photo. Now, of course, Barnaby, being a little boy, was more thrilled with his discovery than his mom, who was just horrified. Uh, <laughs> hey, mom, yeah. look what I yeah. thought. <laughs> Imagine that. He said he likes learning about weird animals and that he named the worm Dead Fred. Very fitting. He even wanted to keep it, but his parents had to put their foot down. Aww. He says, I tried to convince my dad to keep it in a plastic bag, but he wasn't really in on that idea. I think it's because adults don't really enjoy giant worms in their houses. So if I was an adult, I think I would agree. <laughs> He's dead. He won't eat much. Yeah. So apparently giant worms like this are not unusual for New Zealand. Uh, John Maris, curator of the University of Lincoln's entomology research collection, said it was probably just a run-of-the-mill native earthworm. He said there are some very large native earthworms that are known. A meter isn't beyond the borders of reason. But he also said that mostly they live in the deep forest and not typically in people's backyard. That's common? Well, like he said, apparently, you know, in the forest and stuff, I would assume where people aren't at and, you know, interfering with their growth. I'm not going to New Zealand, though. But that's where the hobbits are at. Well, I think you could eat a hobbit. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a big worm. You know, they they describe Smaug as a great worm. Maybe, maybe we've all maybe Ooh, we've always misunderstood dragons. The worm, <laughs> yes, yeah, no wings, no appendage, or I have some appendages, but no wings. Yeah, wow. So, all right. Well, we hope that you have enjoyed yet another installment. Uh, this one on the Mongolian death worm here on our podcast that we'd love to share with you, folks. Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks so much for listening. Some stories of the death worm talk about a worm as long as seven feet tall. Meet seven feet tall. Now, due to the harsh conditions of the Gobi Desert, a soft, fletchy, little uh, fletchy, you know, like fletchy. Fletch. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much. <laughs>